Coming up on Tech Nation, as expeditions to the summit of Mount Everest resume after a one-year closure due to COVID-19, we remember the first to conquer Everest, Sir Edmund Hillary and his climbing partner, Sherpa Tenzing Norgay. Today we air our 1993 interview with Sir Edmund, a man who simply introduced himself as Ed. Then a new drug in clinical trials for Parkinson's. We look at how Parkinson's unfolds in the brain, the idea behind how this drug might treat it, and the hope of slowing, if not stopping, disease progress. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with David Montgomery, a MacArthur Award winner and a professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington. He's the author of The Rocks Don't Lie, A Geologist Investigates Noah's Flood. I asked him, if he was looking for evidence of a flood, what would that be? Fieldwork in Tibet, where I actually discovered evidence for a big ancient flood, was landforms that were deposited where a river had entered a standing body of water. And so what happens is like a river that's carrying a lot of sediment, when that flows into a, a still body of water, a lake, for example, that sediment will all get deposited out, and it can create a feature on the bottom of a lake that when you drain the lake will then stand out in relief on the topography. So you learn to look for certain landform clues that uh, tell you what was there before. Well, from Tibet, we can go to Mount Everest. And I was shocked to learn that geological formations on Mount Everest, some of them were once at the bottom of a sea. Yeah, one of the little known facts about the top of Mount Everest is that it's actually formed out of trilobite poop. It's it's uh, stuff that was uh, um, <laughs> that's science from tiny. That's science. It's hard science. Uh, stuff that was um, deposited on the bottom of an ancient sea, and it's now capping the highest mountain in the world. Uh, and that's an observation that tells you that the water was over those rocks at some point. But it doesn't tell you that the water is over Mount Everest because the other possibility would be that the rocks that now form Mount Everest have risen from the bottom of the sea. And that distinction between how you interpret fossils that are in rocks at high elevation as either uh, old ocean used to be that high or that the mountains rose is actually a pretty basic distinction that's changed a lot in the history of thinking about geology. It's one thing to look at these traditional texts, however they came down to us in whatever way, but if we look at, at folklore, if we look at myths and history and, and, and tradition, we're seeing floods all the time, everywhere, right? Yeah, there's, there's flood stories from all over the world, not literally everywhere around the world, but from places <laughs> in many different parts of the world. And one of the things I learned in writing this book was uh, that the kinds of geological processes that could trigger really big floods in different parts of the world map pretty darn well onto some of the details in the stories of flood, or the flood myths, flood stories uh, from around the world. Like in the Pacific Northwest where I live, there's Native American stories of uh, floods that rose from the sea that read a lot like uh, eyewitness accounts of tsunamis, the sort of a big geologic hazard we know today that it's recently affected Japan and, and Indonesia, and that this coast where I live is, is prone to periodically. You talked about in the, in the 2004 tsunami that, that 
the sea gypsies, the Moken people, actually knew when that when the water before the tsunami it just it drained back away from the shore. They knew to run for the hills. Yeah, their their tradition of um, of a flood story of of when the sea goes out far and fast, you don't go out to look at all the marine life that's stranded in the in the tidal zone. You run for the hills. That story served them really well. Uh, they didn't have any casualties during the 2004 tsunami, um, and it's because they had this oral tradition that conveyed the sort of the geologic knowledge, if you will, of what to do in a bad situation. There's other examples of, of people who uh, had similar oral traditions that uh, survived relatively unscathed, where, where their neighbors who didn't were hammered by that tsunami. And so the idea that uh, an oral tradition could actually then enhance the survivability of your um, progeny sort of plays into the idea that that um, folk tales are that described aspects of how the world worked in ways that helped people survive could be stories that would be told and retold uh, down through the generations and might survive long periods of oral transmission before people started to write material down. And I think that's at the root of an awful lot of flood stories around the world. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features David Montgomery and his book, The Rocks Don't Lie. He continues to be a professor at the University of Washington in his most recent book, is growing a revolution, bringing our soil back to life. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, there's a rush to Nepal with the reopening of expeditions to the summit of Mount Everest after a one-year closure due to COVID-19. Someone in the next month or two will make it to the top first, And in honor of their achievement, we thought we'd air our 1993 interview with the person who, with his climbing partner, Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, first made it to the summit, Sir Edmund Hillary. It's one of our earliest Tech Nation interviews. Then a new drug in clinical trials for Parkinson's. Prothena Biosciences hopes to slow, if not stop it, in its tracks. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. One recurring element in this interview with Sir Edmund Hillary is time. In 1993, it had been 40 years since he had reached the summit of Everest, and now, unbelievably, It's been 28 years since my interview with him. In some respects, it's a bittersweet memory. Yes, Sir Edmund passed away in 2008, but I'm also reminded that we conducted this interview on one of the highest floors of Building No. 1 of the World Trade Center in New York City. Since 9-11, that space no longer exists, but this interview lives on. And like all interviews we're able to record, 
Listening recreates in our imaginations the reality of time and place and lets us peek into history. Mount Everest is located in the Khumbu region of Nepal. I started by asking Sir Edmund what it was like in 1951 when he first visited the area, what had happened to it since, and what it was like at the time of this interview in 1993. Well, it was absolutely uh, magnificent. And in 1951, the forests were dense. And even in the uh, high valleys, uh, there was a multitude of, uh, of shrubs uh, growing and, uh, you know, juniper, that beautiful green juniper, it was growing there in profusion. We actually were amongst those who really started the cutting of the juniper for firewood and used to carry it up to base camp uh, to keep us warm. So I suppose uh, we have to take some of the blame for the fact now that these high mountain valleys virtually have no juniper or uh, other shrubs in there at all. So m major changes have occurred and there's no doubt that the forests lower down, they have not been uh, completely destroyed, um, but they have been very severely thinned out. You know, there have been quite a few, uh, well, not quite a few, but a number of people who've done, uh, taken aerial shots and things of that nature and say that these indicate that the forests uh, in Nepal have not uh, actually uh, subsided as much as is claimed. But I think they're utterly wrong, having uh, seen it from year to year. Um, they're uh, being confused by uh, aerial uh, photographs, uh, which really don't indicate that although there is still forest remaining, uh, the forest has been very severely thinned out by uh, a vast quantity of, of cutting of the trees. You know, you go down uh, below um, the Kumbu area, down in the Farak, area in the Dutkoshi River and this now is the main area um, for getting timber resources for the whole district and every in every house there'll be a great stack of uh, new timber uh, not probably for the use in the house but for selling uh, for uh, um, hotels and things in the various parts of the valley and uh, everywhere you go as you walk along you hear the a constant uh, sawing of timber, still all hand done. You know, the, the, the old pit sawing as, as used to happen in the uh, last century in, in uh, Western countries is uh, still undertaken in, uh, in Nepal. But it does mean that there is very considerable pressure on the forest resources. And, uh, and this is going to have a very serious effect. You wrote in your 1984 book, Ecology 2000, that uh, environmental problems are actually social problems. It is not just the forests that have been affected all these years. Oh, no, I mean, the, um, I've become in increasingly, as I've got older, uh, have uh, come to the view that we can't really separate uh, the environment. We can't separate the uh, forests, or the rivers, and the mountains from people. I mean, they're all uh, part of each other. And uh, I think some of the approach even to national parks have uh, tried to separate uh, the uh, flora and fauna of the areas from people. And, uh, and I don't think this can be fully successful. 
certainly um, up in the Kumbu area, uh, I think uh, the original plan was a, was a very sensible one. And they accepted that the Sherpa people uh, are very colourful, they're a very important part uh, of the national park. Uh, so when they established the national park, they excluded uh, from the sort of restrictive area of the park uh, all the, uh, the Sherpa villages who still had grazing rights uh, in the high pastures and uh, could still uh, cut uh, dead timber for their fires, but not uh, green uh, timber. And I think this, uh, it had a few teething problems, but it has worked out quite well since then. One organization which has made a dramatic impact on the Kumbu region is the Sir Edmund Hillary Himalayan Trust. If you would tell us how the trust came to be founded and the efforts it has undertaken. Well, the Himalayan Trust really grew, like uh, many of these things, between uh, the climb of Everest in 1953 and uh, when I had been back a number of times over the following years, until 1961, uh, I became very much aware that the, uh, the Sherpas you know, lacked so many of the things that we take for granted. Uh, there were no schools there and no medical clinics. And uh, even in some of the villages, there was a great shortage of uh, fresh water. But it wasn't really until uh, 1961. Um, I remember I was up on the Tollenbau Glacier with a group of my Sherpa friends, and we were actually talking about the future of the Sherpas because an increasing number of uh, trekkers and visitors were coming into the area. And um, the, uh, my head Sherpa uh, said to me, um, well, you know, we, uh, we know we are just as strong as you are, certainly at altitude, um, but the main thing we really lack is, is schooling for our children. He realised the importance uh, for the children to get an opportunity of schooling. And could you help us? So I think then for the first time I realised there was something I could do in a practical sense. And uh, so I raised the necessary money um, in the United States and we got a building donated and we moved it with uh, some effort up to uh, the village of Kumjung, and we established the first permanent school uh, in the area. Now, you know, I really thought that was going to be the beginning and end, really, of my sort of aid work with the Sherpas. Uh, but this was uh, far from being the case. Um, I started getting petitions from villagers from many days' walk away who would... Uh, I could always uh, see them approaching because there'd be a group of very respectable-looking gentlemen, and they'd always be uh, carrying these white scarves, or carters, as uh, the shepherds call them, which are an expression of uh, welcome and farewell and respect in general. And they always had uh, bottles of the local um, alcohol, distilled arak. And I was just thinking, aha, here's trouble coming. Somebody's <laughs> going to be asking for something. And they'd come up and they'd sit me down and there'd be no discussion of the project until they'd put the scarves around my neck and uh, had given me several glassfuls of this fiery arrack. And then they uh, would say, can you help us with a school in our village? And I'd always say to them right from the start, uh, what can you do towards the school? And they are very practical people and they would always say, um, well, we have discussed it amongst the village and we have agreed that every household will donate three or four days um, of physical labour towards the building. 
which when you have a, a village with, say, a 80 or 100 houses, is, is quite a lot of uh, hard physical work. And uh, so then I would raise the necessary funds and, and usually get in a few builders, you know, sort of Western-type builders, and we'd go ahead and work together on these projects and establish the schools. Well, now we have 26 of these schools, and uh, I still keep getting many uh, more uh, requests for them. And even our hospital activities, uh, we have two hospitals and 12 medical clinics and many freshwater pipelines. So uh, everything has tended rather to escalate over the years. One thing the Sherpas are not really good at, and I have a great admiration for them in many things, but um, maintenance is, is something that has never been, I don't think, particularly uh, part of their attitude to life. So even though they've worked hard on these schools and uh, contributed a lot to them, the problem of keeping them in good order uh, doesn't really uh, enter their uh, conception too much. I have found over the years that the uh, working with people in a remote area, um, if, you could, if you think, for instance, you can just go in and say you're a medical party, and you think, oh, I'll go in here and I'll look after people for two weeks. And this is a very, very common thing. Doctor will spend two weeks uh, with the Sherpa people. It's almost absolutely useless. I mean, uh, for that two weeks, they may do a, a little bit of treatment of the local people. But as soon as they depart, all the illnesses return. It really has to be a, a long-term uh, support in, in order to have a, uh, a really um, adequate effect. So now we've been going for uh, 30 years. and uh, But we've finally come to the conclusion that we have to uh, say, well, maybe we will do it for another 10 years. And in the first three of those 10 years, we're going to hand over gradually to our, some of our very competent Sherpas who've worked with us for many years, much more of the responsibility and much more of the spending of the money. We've always been very careful on how we spend the money, and, uh, but now we're going to have to hand over some of that responsibility uh, to our um, competent young Sherpas. And gradually we hope that uh, within uh, 10 more years uh, that uh, we'll be able to say, right, it's all up to you. We may be able to raise a little bit of money, but all the planning, all the organising, even most of the fundraising, you're going to have to do yourself. And I think they will. You're listening to our 1993 interview with Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man to reach the summit of Everest. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Well, you've been on record uh, many, many times for your appreciation of the Sherpas as guides and carriers and friends. In your account, My Life with Sherpas, you wrote that they were delightful people to work with, cheerful, hardworking, agreeable, and lacking in any sense of inferiority. And I thought, that's marvelous. How do we instill in many of our children, ourselves, this lack of, or of a sense of inferiority? Can you describe that and its importance? Yes, I think it's one of the most attractive uh, features of the Sherpas that um, uh, their ability to be um, friendly with you, to be extremely hospitable to you, and yet um, not regard you as being superior to them. Uh, I suppose one reason for that is that they know it, that at high altitudes, because of their uh, great ability to, to live at high altitudes, uh, that uh, they themselves uh, are perhaps on the whole more effective uh, than we sort of sea level dwellers are. 
So they, they don't have to have a physical inferiority. But I think even um, mentally, uh, they realise that given the opportunity that they uh, you know, can perform, they can carry out uh, businesses, uh, they can organise things uh, very well indeed. Uh, so um, they don't have a, a chip on their shoulder. They're very pleasant people to work with. And, uh, and I always like this fact that when I'm dealing with them, even if I may be sort of issuing instructions, uh, I don't feel that I'm uh, issuing them uh, to an inferior person because they're certainly not inferior. I'm just issuing them to uh, sort of a colleague, as it were, uh, who I know will um, be very competent in, in carrying them out and, and have no uh, particular concern about the fact uh, that instructions are being given. You know, they're not as evolved in, uh, in uh, what we call civilization, perhaps, in our Western society. But, you know, our civilization uh, has uh, many wonderful things, but it has so many appalling things also. And, uh, and, and I think that the Sherpas, so far at least anyway, uh, have been able to uh, benefit uh, from some of the good aspects of our civilization w without uh, many of the uh, rather appalling things that uh, occur in our society. Now, even in the early days when I was first in there more than 40 years ago, I was very impressed by the fact that the women in the Sherpa society had a very strong place in the society. They had equal say in everything that went on. And even in, the, in their uh, marriage routines, on the rare occasions that a, that a marriage broke up, uh, all of the possessions uh, that each had brought into the marriage uh, had been recorded by the local village council. And if the uh, marriage did break up, uh, then they were returned to the people who got married. Now, this is more than 40 years ago and had been going for many, many years. Whereas it really is a, still a relatively new thing in our society uh, where if a marriage splits up, uh, everything's divided up 50-50. That's been going for years and years in the Sherpa community. So even though they lived in a remote area and, and many of their customs and habits are relatively um, simplistic ones, perhaps, uh, they did, uh, many of their approaches were also, I feel, very sophisticated. And uh, so it, it made them a very interesting and, and uh, worthwhile people to work with. In the foreword to The Law of the Mother, you wrote, modern technology and finance can certainly be useful, but not at the expense of crushing a traditional culture or an exceptional environment. In what ways can science and technology help, and when does it hurt? Well, I don't think there's any um, question at all that uh, the, um, although the people in these remote areas do have um, um, a well-developed understanding of how to grow crops, for instance, and to feed themselves adequately, uh, there's no question that you know, the vast amount of scientific knowledge that has been uh, built up in agriculture in the West, uh, if it's used carefully, uh, and, um, and doesn't uh, destroy uh, many of the, the natural methods used uh, by the local people. I, I think it can be quite useful. And um, even the training of uh, some of the local uh, farmers who uh, have a bit of a background of education in uh, um, agricultural techniques, uh, I'm sure can be beneficial. But uh, I, I really feel very strongly that the 
uh, if you have a high-powered organization that goes into a remote area and tries to make that area um, just the same as you know the great central plains of America sort of business, that uh, it may have uh, an initial effect, but it is probably going to destroy uh, a great deal of the local culture and, and the very strong community spirit uh, which is uh, so outstanding in these, in these remote areas. Because the Sherpas are very uh, pleasant people to work with, um, I think uh, that's why we've kept going so long and why we have a strong sense of responsibility uh, to uh, want to make sure that what we've established already uh, keeps going for a good deal longer. Now, I understand that several years ago you received an unusual telephone call from your son, Peter. Oh, yes, this was just a couple of years ago, and I was sitting at my uh, desk in my home in Auckland in New Zealand, and there was a ring on the telephone, and I picked up uh, the phone and said, Hello, and the voice of uh, my son Peter came through the telephone and said, Oh, hello, Dad. And I said, Where are you, Peter? And he said, I'm on top of Mount Everest. <laughs> so I sat there, uh, slightly taken aback, I must admit, uh, to hear my uh, son talking all the way from the summit of Everest. What uh, had happened was he had a, some sort of walkie-talkie, I guess, which operated from the summit uh, down to base camp uh, where there was a dish antenna. And, uh, and then the sound uh, just uh, bounced from satellite to satellite around the world and uh, half a world away arrived in New Zealand as clear as a bell. It was really qu quite amazing and really did show the enormous changes that have taken place in, in technology uh, in mountaineering expeditions. As a matter of fact, I had the longest talk to Peter on, on that telephone call than I'd had for some time. And then he mentioned that his uh, hands and feet were getting a bit cold, <laughs> so uh, we duly hung up. Well, you know, so much has changed in technology. When I read the accounts from 40 years ago, uh, the, the whole management of oxygen and uh, uh, of getting cold and warm, so many things have changed, and uh, it would seem relatively much more easy. Have you considered uh, climbing Everest again? Well, no, I'm a little getting <coughs> a little bit long in the tooth now for <laughs> the climbing Mount Everest, but the, uh, certainly the changes really have been very substantial indeed. Uh, the uh, actual uh, equipment has developed enormously, and of course the techniques of the mountaineers uh, have uh, improved greatly as well, and their abilities have improved, as of course they have in virtually all sports. So the modern mountaineer is, is able to climb much harder things than uh, we would have been able to do, and they can move more, diff uh, more quickly through difficult and dangerous country. So it really means that, uh, you know, you tend to assess danger in, uh, in the sense of how long you're going to be uh, in an area where something might fall down and perhaps kill you. And if you're only going to be uh, there for half an hour, uh, you may well take the risk. But if you're going to be there for, say, five hours, the chances of you getting collected is very much greater. Well, the modern climber can move so much more quickly uh, through dangerous areas that they are doing uh, lots of spectacular climbs in areas which we really would have regarded as being too dangerous uh, to attempt. You're listening to our 1993 interview with mountaineer Sir Edmund Hillary, who, with climbing partner Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, were the first humans to reach the summit of Everest, 
We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, a new drug in clinical trials for Parkinson's. I speak with Dr. Jean Kinney, President and CEO of Prothena Biosciences in San Francisco. We look at how Parkinson's unfolds in the brain and how this drug would work. Stay with us. Tech Nation, and our 1993 interview with Sir Edmund Hillary. We'd just been talking about the technological improvements in mountaineering between when we first climbed Everest in 1951, some 40 years before the time of this interview. When you get down to it still, um, despite all the improvements in technology and the skill of the climbers, a lot of success still relies very much on physical fitness, of course, but essentially on motivation. Living uh, and working at high altitude is a very uncomfortable business. It's certainly not good fun. And, uh, you know, the shortage of oxygen, the fact that you're frequently nauseated by food, and, uh, and the fact that sleeping is very difficult. Life on the whole is pretty uncomfortable. So unless you have that very strong motivation and that desire to succeed, uh, it's very unlikely that you'll persist. Well, I think many people will think, well, yes, technology has come along, and uh, the feat that, that you and, the, and your team had accomplished back then, it's like, ooh, with much less technology. At the same time, many people have forgotten why it made such an impact on the world that you had climbed Everest. Yes, well, the, um, you know, we... Uh, as members of the expedition, I don't think in the were ever completely confident uh, that we were going to be successful. Many expeditions had tried before, maybe in good expeditions, and uh, they'd got pretty high on the mountain, but they had not been able to overcome uh, that last thousand feet uh, of altitude barrier. So uh, we um, certainly, I know that 
I sort of tackled each problem as it came along. And uh, I left worrying about uh, getting to the summit until we were in a position to put in the uh, final assaults. So in a sense, we had one thing that all subsequent expeditions didn't have to put up with, and that was there was a psychological barrier. Uh, we didn't really know whether it was humanly possible to get to the top of the mountain, and many of the physiologists had warned us that even if we did get to the top, and even if we were using oxygen, we might well collapse on the summit due to the very thin air there. So we had that constantly in our minds. And uh, when we finally did get to the summit, I took my oxygen off for about 10 or 15 minutes without uh, any uh, great uh, problems. Uh, I think I realized that um, it was not only possible uh, to get to the summit uh, using oxygen, but maybe even it was possible uh, to get to the top uh, without using oxygen, as was you know, proved some years later uh, when uh, Reinhold Messner and Habler reach the summit of the mountain without using oxygen. I think also the time in history that you reached the summit was, was important. I believe the news came in right around the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, and it was right after World War II, and there was a sort of perspective in England. When we were on the mountain, certainly, I, I spent no time at all thinking about the coronation. But um, we climbed the mountain on, the, on May 29th, and the coronation was on June the 2nd. And uh, our correspondent of the London Times, I think he was the one that realized if he uh, really got the story from us, rushed down the mountain and uh, got back to Kathmandu, uh, where there was a check post radio, that he just might get the information out in time for the coronation. And uh, he did this, and he'd actually worked out a code with the uh, editors of of the Times magazine, because people were all the time trying to find out precisely what we're doing. And he sent out this code, and it actually arrived in London uh, on the evening of June the 1st. And uh, the, it was sent along to the Times newspaper, and they had to decide whether they just use the information themselves or give it to all the media. And I think very sensibly, they uh, gave it to all the media. And uh, as a consequence, all the newspapers on the morning of the coronation, June the 2nd, had, you know, all this and Everest too sort of uh, <laughs> titles. And I'm sure there's uh, no, no doubt that that um, helped stimulate uh, world interest in our success. I have to ask you, because you're Sir Edmund, you know, I, I've always liked the idea of being Lady Moira. How would I become Lady Moira? Well, I don't know. I think probably uh, you'd either have to be uh, in a uh, Commonwealth country. Okay, so first you have to move. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to move, right. <laughs> but then uh, uh, a title that a lady gets in, um, in Britain or uh, in, uh, in New Zealand, <clears throat> they don't call her lady, they call her dame. So the Governor-General of New Zealand, for instance, who is, is a woman and a very uh, successful and capable lady. She is called Dame as before her name. Oh, we don't want that. No, you don't. You don't no. go in much for Dame. We want Lady Moira. <laughs> okay. So what if I Well, I think the only somebody? other way is probably to marry a knight. Okay. Now, who already has a title. Now, is that a sir or is that a lord? Oh, no. No, a sir is, uh, is adequate, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you hear that, gals? <laughs> Liberated women? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in a way it's rather unfair uh, that uh, there is a, a difference in name, although it's got equal status, uh, between uh, men and women. Most of the ladies uh, that uh, one strikes in, in England probably are the daughters of uh, and not just sirs, probably dukes and uh, and people of that nature have a very high ranking in that particular field. So their daughters uh, are called uh, Lady Joan or Lady something or other. Oh, so if we got adopted by someone, would we become Lady? Uh... I doubt if adoption's quite enough. I think it uh, it's oh. necessary to be uh, you know blood. So that part's relation. over with. Yeah, you do. I think you'll have to dodge that one. Uh, the I think the only thing, only way you really have left <coughs> is to uh, marry some uh, gentleman with a title. Great. Will you keep an eye out for me? <laughs> <laughs> I can't necessarily recommend it. I mean, I, <laughs> I've found that people with titles are very much the same as people without titles. Even if you had not been first, the very fact that you attempted to climb Everest for any man or any woman would change their lives. Um, do you think every man should attempt to find their own equivalent of Everest? I'm uh, quite sure that um, all people, whether young or old, that it's good for them to have challenges in their lives. You know, life can be very boring and, and very dull um, if you don't uh, have some sort of a challenge that sort of uh, spurs you on. Now, it doesn't have to be, of course, climbing a mountain or sailing around the world or all these other rather dramatic sort of things. Uh, I mean, um, for some people, just uh, camping alone in the out of doors, which they've never done before, uh, can be uh, quite frightening and uh, quite an exciting experience. And I know many people who have been called on perhaps to give a talk in front of uh, a thousand people, uh, and they've been absolutely petrified with fear. But if they can overcome that, if they can... Uh, stimulate themselves to do a reasonable presentation, uh, that challenge gives them an enormous amount of satisfaction. And I think we need that constant stimulation in our lives. So many elderly people sort of give up. I've, uh, in recent years, because I'm now 74, um, been tend to be invited along to uh, open uh, extensions to old people's homes and things like that. And uh, and on one occasion, I went along to this very, very nice facility. And the uh, I was talking to the uh, elderly inhabitants there. And I, I looked at them and I suddenly thought to myself, you know, I'm actually older than at least 50% of the people there. And although they were living in great comfort and it was a good set up for them, in a way they'd given up. Whereas I was leaving next day for London or somewhere or other and uh, planning a fundraising thing. And I, it made me realise how important it is for us to, doesn't matter how old we are or how young, to uh, accept challenges, to look for challenges, uh, however modest they may be, and, uh, and try and overcome them. And I think it makes life a lot more interesting. You've been listening to our 1993 interview with Sir Edmund Hillary. Since that time, Sir Edmund's son, Peter Hillary, has completed the seven summits, the highest mountain on each of the seven continents, and established new routes across Antarctica 
to the South Pole. He continues his father's philanthropic work with Himalayan foundations throughout the world. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Parkinson disease is known by its many challenging symptoms. We learned today that we can trace the emergence of these symptoms in the brain as the disease progresses. Dr. Jean Kinney is the president and CEO of Prothena Biosciences. Well, Jean, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Now, I wanted to start with a concept that we've all experienced, and that is that we go to the doctor with a medical situation, and sometimes we get a treatment that cures it. I mean, it's great. And then at other times, we get therapeutics. They just relieve the symptoms, and that's a very important difference. It is an important difference, and and both types of therapies are extremely important. Um, you know, improving symptoms, you know, certainly provides a better quality of life while you're working through whatever the disease may be. Um, but in the case of neurological disorders, disorders of the brain, what, what we call neurodegenerative disorders, the, the challenge with purely symptomatic treatments is they really don't do anything to slow the continuing progression of the disease underneath the symptoms. Uh, and that's a very important distinction. And obviously, we would love to have treatments that do both of those things. Now, we're going to talk about Parkinson's today. And before we go further, how prevalent is Parkinson's? What is it? And is it like any other diseases? Yeah, it's a great question. Parkinson's disease affects um, really one out of every 100 individuals over the age of 60 years old. So it is a disease that's uh, not uncommon. Um, That translates into about 7 to 10 million individuals with Parkinson's disease on a worldwide basis. And notably, it's it's the fastest growing neurological disease. So it is second most, uh, in terms of neurodegenerative diseases, it's second in terms of its its prevalence uh, next to Alzheimer's disease. But as I mentioned, it's the fastest growing neurological disorder. So actually having treatments that can slow the progression of this disease becomes a very important uh, goal for us in the scientific community. So what causes it? And I don't mean like I I ate too many peanut butter sandwiches. What causes it in terms of what goes wrong in your body? Yeah, it's a big question. And, you know, we've known about this disease since the first publications all the way back in 1817. So the very first uh, time this disease was described was by uh, a physician by the name of James Parkinson. And, um, and we understood a little bit about the disease and we came to understand that there were a certain set of nerve cells in the brains of individuals that were affected by this disease that contain a chemical called dopamine. And when those nerve cells were lost in the context of this disease, we would see the symptoms that are very typical of this disease. So things like tremor, slowness of movement, difficulty in, in walking, um, even becoming relatively rigid in, in terms of your muscles. And so as we came to understand, we really spent a lot of time thinking about these dopamine nerves, what might be going wrong with these dopamine cells, and how might we treat those dopamine cells. And from that understanding, actually, a lot of the symptomatic treatments came. And so it was really a worthwhile endeavor to understand that. But I think the understanding of what causes Parkinson's disease has really made an incredible step forward as we discovered the role of a protein 
that's called alpha-synuclein. And, you know, less important what the name of the protein is, more important what that protein does. It sounds like a planet, like an alpha-synuclein, <laughs> I come in peace, you know? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, yeah, well, it, it's an important protein in brain cells, and it controls a number of function in brain cells, which are important for normal, healthy living. And I think, you know, it's something that you want to make sure uh, is well-regulated. What, ha what we believe happens in the context of Parkinson's disease is that this protein goes awry. It, it actually starts to uh, take on a, a shape that is not healthy to neurons. It becomes a bad actor. And when that happens, it can cause damage to nerve cells. And when it causes damage to nerve cells, we start to lose the function of those nerve cells first, their ability to actually do what they're meant to do. And then ultimately those nerve cells will die and that's when we start to see the symptoms that are associated with Parkinson's disease. The symptoms, as you describe them, uh, they are really sort of they come in waves. They're always they start here, they start, then they go here, and then they go here. That succession suggests either it's a particular amount that's in your brain or a particular place. How does that work? It, it's a it's a wonderful question. One of the things that a lot of people that are studying Parkinson's disease today believe is that the dysregulation or the changes in this protein, alpha-synuclein, may actually start outside of the brain. So we can actually see very, very early in the course of the disease um, impact on things outside the brain. So for example, uh, gastrointestinal motility issues. A lot of patients with Parkinson's disease, as they think back on the disease, realize that they've had you know, constipation, for example, for a number of years um, before even these tremor and more typical motor manifestations of the disease are seen. A and one of the things that's really interesting from a scientific perspective about this protein is that we're learning that it can actually move between nerve cells. And so uh, some, some very bright scientists have done careful work where they've actually looked at this protein and when it starts to go awry, when it turns from a good actor to a bad actor, they're able to actually see that in the brains uh, of patients that have uh, died either from Parkinson's disease or other reasons on autopsy. And, and what they've learned is that as this protein spreads from one region of the brain to the next, it seems to underlie some of the symptoms that we typically associate with Parkinson's disease. So for example, um, if, if in fact there's a lot of this protein in an area of the brain that, that is important for sensing smell, you might, see a, a, you might realize that the patient has had some trouble with the sensation of smell for some period of time. And then in connected regions of the brain, um, you, know, you may subsequently see involvement in areas that underlie motor function or movement. And that's when you might see impact on things like movement. So it's a really important concept. Um, I liken it to, you know, thinking about a, a fire in an empty lot. So if, if you have an empty lot and, and there's a fire going, you know, certainly you expect that that fire may continue to expand within that lot. But what you also have to be careful of is that an ember of that fire isn't blown to an adjacent lot and catches that adjacent lot on fire. And therefore the process continues to spread and spread. So as we think about slowing the disease process and the progression of this disease, we don't just think about aiming the, the, the treatment at the, the lot that's on fire, but also preventing the spread to new areas. And I think that's an important new concept in terms of how we think about Parkinson's disease. Well, what is Prothena doing? 
Well, so we think a lot about these proteins and how they should be shaped so that they can actually have their normal job and do their normal job. And then what goes wrong and how we can actually intervene in that process. So for any protein, an alpha-synuclein is a protein, you know, proteins are made by the cells of our body. And when they're made, um, they actually need to fold in a certain three-dimensional uh, shape. And it's important that they fold in the right shape because that allows them to get together with other proteins and do whatever it is that the protein is supposed to do, make skin, uh, make tissue, make teeth, make whatever it is that they're supposed to make. And so when that process goes wrong and these proteins actually don't take on the correct three-dimensional shape, we actually have systems that kind of see that, tag those proteins and tag them for removal. And so these are kind of the internal trash cans of our cells. And when that happens... Um, right now, in our brains, if we don't have Parkinson's. Every minute, every minute that's happening, right? And, and it's a very important process because what we believe happens in these types of diseases is that the, the protein that's in the bad shape actually can start to overwhelm that trash removal system. And when that happens, you start to have problems because it can actually recruit now normally folded or normal, normal protein to start to actually misfold into this incorrect conformation. And, and then they become bad actors. So it really starts this whole aggregation process that we think is problematic for cells. And eventually cells can't handle that stress and they start to become sick, they don't function well, and then ultimately those cells die. Can we see on brain scans where and the accumulation of these bad actors? Not with Parkinson's disease and not with alpha-synuclein yet. We can see with brain scans the consequence of that. And, and that's a very important uh, point, which is we can look, for example, at the different parts of the brain that would be impacted by things like alpha-synuclein. And we can actually ask the question of whether those parts of the brain continue to look and function normally, or, or whether we start to see a decline in function. And what we, what we, what we believe you know, when we see that is um, you know, that that actually is foundational to the symptoms, right? So when you see that decline in the function by these brain scans, then you can actually see that the symptoms progress in a very similar manner. And what's important about these types of brain scans is that you can look in different areas of the brain. So you can actually ask the question of whether the symptoms match what that area of the brain is responsible for. And of course, it's very interesting then to compare it over time to you see where the deterioration is and how that results or presents. Indeed, it's a, it's a foundational part of the way we think about the development of drugs that are designed to actually slow that disease progression. Can we actually see a benefit on the clinical symptoms? And can we also generate, using these types of brain scans, evidence that the biology appropriately predicts that benefit? Now, your drug, you've already determined it's safe, you've figured out dosage levels, and uh, you've had a, a phase, what we call 2A study. You're still in phase two, but this is the first one in phase two. I guess it's called the Pasadena trial? That's correct, yeah. So we, uh, as you say, we were able to take our molecule into a phase two study. Um, it is what we would consider to be a proof of concept study. So these are studies where in the case of the Pasadena study, we invited 300 patients or just over 300 patients with uh, early stage Parkinson's disease to the study. Um, now, 
in the case of Pasadena, what we were trying to understand was multiple fold. We wanted to understand first the appropriate way to assess change over time. You know, you don't have 10 years to evaluate these types of approaches. So what you want to understand is, is there a change, say, over the course of one year that you can actually assess that would tell you whether you were able to slow that progression? And, um, you know, one of the ways we look at that is by signs and symptoms using different scales that are well validated for these types of clinical trials. Um, one of those scales is a scale called the UPDRS or the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. And what we found in our study was that uh, over a 12-month period, when we looked at progression for patients that were treated with placebo, we did see a, a worsening on this scale over a 12-month period. And what we were encouraged to see was that um, when we actually did something called central reading, meaning we actually videotaped individuals and we had neurologists independently assess those individuals on this scale, um, we found a 35% slowing over the 12-month period on that UPDRS, uh, the part three of the scale, which is the relevant part here. Um, so we were very encouraged by that, but I think equally, as we were just discussing, we were very happy to see that on certain brain scans where we looked at um, a marker of how neurons are functioning or nerve cells are functioning. This is a, a, a MRI-based scan, uh, non-invasive. So this is something where we can look into the brains of individuals. It actually measures blood flow, which is an indication of how active these nerve cells are. Um, what we found is for placebo-treated patients, over the 12-month period, we actually saw a decrease in this marker cerebral blood flow, which is an indication that there's less neuronal activity over that one-year period. Importantly, for patients that were treated with this drug, which is called prasinezumab, um, we actually saw stabilization and, in fact, even some increase in activity over that same time period. So what you like to see is that the biology actually is underlying and predictive of any clinical effects that you might measure. And in fact, we were able to observe both of those, uh, at least in the early part of this study. So the plan then would be to expand this study and to move on to a larger study, which we now have planned. So we're moving from Pasadena to Padova. Padova is what we'd call a phase 2B study, um, which we've recently just announced and uh, actually now is available uh, online so people can go take a look at that study uh, and understand um, what that is. But it'll be a larger study. We'll invite more participants, up to 575 individuals with early Parkinson's disease. And differently from Pasadena, um, we would invite patients that are on stable dose of symptomatic agents like these dopamine replacement therapies we've been talking about. What about the people in the first study? Did they get to go on? Yeah, so the people in the first study, they're still, they're still actually enrolled. So we're still continuing that study. Um, there are multiple parts to that study. And so they're, what, what, after the first year. They're not left on the, on the wayside. That's what I, really where I was going here. They're, they're <laughs> absolutely not. So, yeah. So, so the, in fact, I will tell you after the first year of the Pasadena study, any patient that was taking a placebo, so, so something that's not considered to be active, um, was allowed to cross over. Uh, and actually take uh, prasinezumab in the second year of the study. And so, um, you know, we've kept uh, any patient that wanted to continue in that study was able to. Now, if people want to be considered for the current study that's now enrolling, how do they do that? That's a, it, yeah, it's, it's an important point. So there are many studies evaluating treatments for Parkinson's disease, and certainly Padova is one of them. 
Um, we the the best source of information that that I would recommend is um, a site on the internet called clinicaltrials.gov. So clinicaltrials.gov. That's an NIH site. It's a government site. It's an NIH site. That's exactly right, and um, it's easily searchable. Um, you can put in a condition like Parkinson's disease, and it will pull up all the Parkinson's trials by phase. Um, of course, there are multiple phases to clinical trials: phase one, two, and three, as we've been talking about. Um, there are also what are known as uh, national uh, clinical trial numbers, or NCTs, um, where you can look up a trial if you so choose to do so. And I'm happy to provide the, the NCT number for uh, Padova. I suspect it's not like three digits, right? <laughs> it's a couple digits long. That's correct. <laughs> we'll have that on the website. We'll have that on the exactly. website. But go that to clinical great. trials and look for Parkinson's, and you will get, you will see the Prothena uh, trials. Now, let me ask you this. How do you take this drug? How often is it administered? Yeah, it's, so this drug is an IV infusion that's administered uh, approximately once a month. And, um, you know, the, the, we've, we've found to date, you know, obviously we look closely to make sure that the drug is well tolerated um, and that patients aren't having any uh, severe adverse reactions to the drug. And to date, it's been generally well tolerated and, and we've been pleased with its safety profile. Well, I got to tell you, you're much better at naming trials than you are at naming drugs. I just wanted to <laughs> throw that in because you don't have a lot of choice on naming the drug at this point. But, That's, uh, yeah, we have a few more restrictions around the naming of drugs at this stage of development. That's correct. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Gene. And I hope you come back and tell us how it turns out. Well, it was wonderful, wonderful to speak with you. And thank you for having me. Dr. Jean Kinney is the president and CEO of Prothena Biosciences in San Francisco. More information about their Parkinson trial, for which they are currently recruiting, can be found on their website at prothena.com. That's P-R-O-Pro-Thena, T-H-E-N-A, prothena.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.